This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London right now. Recording by Matt Saw. Slaves of the Machine. The more I thought of Jackson's arm, the more shaken I was. I was confronted by the concrete. For the first time I was seeing life. My university life and study and culture had not been real. I had learned nothing but theories of life and society that looked all very well on the printed page. But now I had seen life itself. Jackson's arm was a fact of life. The fact, man, the irrefragable fact, of Ernest's was ringing in my consciousness. It seemed monstrous, impossible, that our whole society was based upon blood. And yet there was Jackson. I could not get away from him. Constantly my thoughts swung back to him as the compass to the pole. He had been monstrously treated. His blood had not been paid for in order that a larger dividend might be paid and I knew a score of happy, complacent families that had received those dividends, and by that much had profited by Jackson's blood. If one man could be so monstrously treated, and society move on its way unheeding, might not many men be so monstrously treated? I remembered Ernest's women of Chicago who toiled for ninety cents a week, and the child slaves of the southern cotton mills he had described, and I could see their wan white hands from which the blood had been pressed, at work upon the cloth out of which had been made my gown. And then I thought of the Sierra Mills and the dividends that had been paid, and I saw the blood of Jackson upon my gown as well. Jackson, I could not escape. Always my meditations led me back to him. Down in the depths of me I had a feeling that I stood on the edge of a precipice. It was as though I were about to see a new and awful revelation of life. And not I alone. My whole world was turning over. There was my father. I could see the effect Ernest was beginning to have on him. And then there was the bishop. 
When I had last seen him, he had looked a sick man. He was at high nervous tension, and in his eyes there was unspeakable horror. From the little I learned, I knew that Ernest had been keeping his promise of taking him through hell. But what scenes of hell the bishop's eyes had seen I knew not, for he seemed too stunned to speak about them. Once the feeling strung upon me that my little world and all the world was turning over, I thought of Ernest as the cause of it. And also I thought, we were so happy and peaceful before he came. And the next moment I was aware that the thought was a treason against truth, and Ernest rose before me transfigured, the apostle of truth, with shining brows and the fearlessness of one of God's own angels, battling for the truth and the right, and battling for the succor of the poor and lonely and oppressed. And then there arose before me another figure, the Christ. He, too, had taken the part of the lowly and oppressed, and against all the established power of priest and Pharisee. And I remembered his end upon the cross, and my heart contracted with a pang as I thought of Ernest. Was he, too, destined for a cross? He, with his clarion call and war-noted voice, and all the fine man's vigor of him. And in that moment, I knew that I loved him, and that I was melting with desire to comfort him. I thought of his life, a sordid, harsh, and meagre life it must have been. And I thought of his father, who had lied and stolen for him and been worked to death. And he himself had gone into the mills when he was ten. All my heart seemed bursting with desire to fold my arms around him and to rest his head on my breast, his head that must be weary with so many thoughts, and to give him rest, just rest, and easement and forgetfulness for a tender space. I met Colonel Ingram at a church reception. Him I knew well, and had known him well for many years. I trapped him behind large palms and rubber plants, though he did not know he was trapped. He met me with the conventional gaiety and gallantry. He was ever a graceful man, diplomatic, tactful, and considerate. And as for appearance, he was the most distinguished-looking man in our society. Beside him, even the venerable head of the university looked tawdry and small. And yet I found Colonel Ingram situated the same as the unlettered mechanics. He was not a free agent. He, too, was bound upon the wheel. I shall never forget the change in him when I mentioned Jackson's case. His smiling good nature vanished like a ghost. A sudden, frightful expression distorted his well-bred face. I felt the same alarm that I had felt when James Smith broke out. But Colonel Ingram did not curse. That was the slight difference that was left between the working man and him. He was framed as a wit— but he had no wit now, and unconsciously, this way and that he glanced for avenues of escape. But he was trapped amid the palms and rubber trees. Oh, he was sick of the sound of Jackson's name. Why had I brought the matter up? He did not relish my joke. It was poor taste on my part, and very inconsiderate. Did I not know that in his profession personal feelings did not count? He left his personal feelings at home when he went down to the office. At the office he had only professional feelings. Should Jackson have received damages? I asked. Certainly, he answered. That is, personally, I have a feeling that he should. But that has nothing to do with the legal aspects of the case. He was getting his scattered wits slightly in hand. Tell me, has right anything to do with the law? I asked. You have used the wrong initial consonant, he smiled in answer. Might? I queried, and he nodded his head. And yet we are supposed to get justice by means of the law? That is the paradox of it, he countered. We do get justice. You are speaking professionally now, are you not? I asked. Colonel Ingram blushed, actually blushed, and again he looked anxiously about him for a way of escape. But I blocked his path and did not offer to move. Tell me, I said, when one surrenders his personal feelings to his professional feelings, may not the action be defined as a sort of spiritual mayhem? I did not get an answer. Colonel Ingram had ingloriously bolted, overturning a palm in his flight. Next, I tried the newspapers. I wrote a quiet, restrained, dispassionate account of Jackson's case. I made no charges against the men with whom I had talked, nor for that matter did I even mention them. I gave the actual facts of the case, the long years Jackson had worked in the mills, his effort to save the machinery from damage and the consequent accident, and his own present wretched and starving condition. The three local newspapers rejected my communication, likewise did the two weeklies. 
I got hold of Percy Layton. He was a graduate of the university, had gone in for journalism, and was then serving his apprenticeship as reporter on the most influential of the three newspapers. He smiled when I asked him the reason the newspapers suppressed all mention of Jackson or his case. Editorial policy, he said. We have nothing to do with that. It's up to the editors. But why is it policy? I asked. We're all solid with the corporations. If you paid advertising rates, you couldn't get any such matter into the papers. Man who tried to smuggle it in would lose his job. You couldn't get it in if you paid ten times the regular advertising rates. How about your own policy? I questioned. It would seem your function is to twist truth at the command of your employers, who in turn obey the behests of the corporations. I haven't anything to do with that. He looked uncomfortable for the moment and then brightened as he saw his way out. I, myself, do not write untruthful things. I keep square all right with my own conscience. Of course, there's lots that's repugnant in the course of the day's work. But then you see that's all part of the day's work. He wound up boyishly. Yet you expect to sit at an editor's desk some day and conduct a policy? I'll be case-hardened by that time, was his reply. Since you are not yet case-hardened, tell me what you think right now about the general editorial policy. I don't think, he answered quickly. One can't kick over the ropes if he's going to succeed in journalism. I've learned that much at any rate. And he nodded his young head sagely. But the right? I persisted. Oh, you don't understand the game. Of course it's all right, because it comes out all right, don't you see? Delightfully vague, I murmured. But my heart was aching for the youth of him. I felt that I must either scream or burst into tears. I was beginning to see through the appearances of the society in which I had always lived, and to find the frightful realities that were beneath. There seemed a tacit conspiracy against Jackson, and I was aware of a thrill of sympathy for the whining lawyer who had ingloriously fought his case. But this tacit conspiracy grew large. Not alone was it aimed against Jackson. It was aimed against every working man who was maimed in the mills. And if against every man in the mills, why not against every man in all the other factories and mills? In fact, was it not true of all the industries? And if this was so, then society was a lie. I shrank back from my own conclusions. It was too terrible and awful to be true. But there was Jackson, and Jackson's arm, and the blood that stained my gown and dripped from my own roof beams. And there were many Jacksons, hundreds of them in the mills alone, as Jackson himself had said. Jackson I could not escape. I saw Mr. Wixon and Mr. Pertonwaith, the two men who held most of the stock in the Sierra Mills. But I could not shake them as I had shaken the mechanics in their employ. I discovered that they had an ethic superior to that of the rest of society. It was what I may call the aristocratic ethic, or the master ethic. Note. Before Avis Everhard was born, John Stuart Mill, in his essay On Liberty, wrote, Wherever there is an ascendant class, a large portion of the morality emanates from its class interests and its class feelings of superiority. They talked in large ways of policy, and they identified policy and right, and to me they talked in fatherly ways, patronizing my youth and inexperience. They were the most hopeless of all I had encountered in my quest. They believed absolutely that their conduct was right. There was no question about it, no discussion. They were convinced that they were the saviors of society, and that it was they who had made happiness for the many, and they drew pathetic pictures of what would be the sufferings of the working class were it not for the employment that they and they alone, by their wisdom, provided for it. Fresh from these two masters, I met Ernest and related my experience. He looked at me with a pleased expression and said, Really, this is fine. You are beginning to dig truth for yourself. It is your own empirical generalization, and it is correct. No man in the industrial machine is a free-will agent except the large capitalist, and he isn't, if you'll pardon the Irishism. Note. Verbal contradictions, called bulls, were long an amiable weakness of the ancient Irish. You see, the masters are quite sure that they are right in what they are doing. That is the crowning absurdity of the whole situation. They are so tied by their human nature that they can't do a thing unless they think it is right. They must have a sanction for their acts. When they want to do a thing, in business of course, they must wait till there arises in their brain somehow a religious or ethical or scientific or philosophic concept that the thing is right. And then they go ahead and do it, unwitting that one of the weaknesses of the human mind is that the wish is parent to the thought. No matter what they want to do, the sanction always comes. 
They are superficial casuists. They are Jesuitical. They even see their way to doing wrong that right may come of it. One of the pleasant and axiomatic fictions they have created is that they are superior to the rest of mankind in wisdom and efficiency. Therefrom comes their sanction to manage the bread and butter of the rest of mankind. They have even resurrected the theory of the divine right of kings, commercial kings in their case. Note. The newspapers in 1902 of that era credited the president of the Anthracite Coal Trust, George F. Baer, with the enunciation of the following principle. The rights and interests of the laboring man will be protected by the Christian men to whom God, in his infinite wisdom, has given the property interests of the country. The weakness in their position lies in that they are merely businessmen. They are not philosophers. They are not biologists nor sociologists. If they were, of course, all would be well. A businessman who was also a biologist and a sociologist would know approximately the right thing to do for humanity. But outside the realm of business, these men are stupid. They know only business. They do not know mankind nor society, and yet they set themselves up as arbiters of the fates of the hungry millions and all the other millions thrown in. History some day will have an excruciating laugh at their expense. I was not surprised when I had my talk out with Mrs. Wixon and Mrs. Pertonwaith. They were society women. Note. Society is here used in a restricted sense, a common usage of the times to denote the gilded drones that did no labor, but only glutted themselves at the honey vats of the workers. Neither the businessmen nor the laborers had time or opportunity for society. Society was the creation of the idle rich who toiled not, and who in this way played. Their homes were palaces. They had many homes scattered over the country, in the mountains, on lakes, and by the sea. They were tended by armies of servants, and their social activities were bewildering. They patronized the university and the churches, and the pastors especially bowed at their knees in meek subservience. Note. Bring on your tainted money, was the express sentiment of the church during this period. There were powers, these two women. What of the money that was theirs? The power of subsidization of thought was theirs to a remarkable degree, as I was soon to learn under Ernest's tuition. They aped their husbands and talked in the same large ways about policy and the duties and responsibilities of the rich. They were swayed by the same ethic that dominated their husbands, the ethic of their class, and they uttered glib phrases that their own ears did not understand. Also, they grew irritated when I told them of the deplorable condition of Jackson's family. And when I wondered that they had made no voluntary provision for the man, I was told that they thanked no one for instructing them in their social duties. When I asked them flatly to assist Jackson, they as flatly refused. The astounding thing about it was that they refused in almost identically the same language, and this in face of the fact that I interviewed them separately, and that one did not know that I had been or was going to see the other. Their common reply was that they were glad of the opportunity to make it perfectly plain that no premium would ever be put on carelessness by them, nor would they, by paying for accident, tempt the poor to hurt themselves in the machinery. Note. In the files of the Outlook, a critical weekly of the period, in the number dated August 18, 1906, is related the circumstance of a working man losing his arm, the details of which are quite similar to those of Jackson's case as related by Avis Everhard. And they were sincere, these two women. They were drunk with conviction of the superiority of their class and of themselves. They had a sanction in their own class ethic for every act they performed. As I drove away from Mrs. Pertonwaith's great house, I looked back at it, and I remembered Ernest's expression that they were bound to the machine, but that they were so bound that they sat on top of it. End of chapter 4 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org. Recording by Matt Saw, The Philomaths. Ernest was often at the house, nor was it my father merely, nor the controversial dinners that drew him there. Even at that time I flattered myself that I played some part in causing his visits and it was not long before I learned the correctness of my surmise. For never was there such a lover as Ernest Everhard. His gaze and his hand-clasp grew firmer and steadier, if that were possible. 
and the question that had grown from the first in his eyes grew only the more imperative. My impression of him the first time I saw him had been unfavorable. Then I had found myself attracted toward him. Next came my repulsion, when he so savagely attacked my class and me. After that, as I saw that he had not maligned my class and that the harsh and bitter things he said about it were justified, I had drawn closer to him again. He became my oracle. For me, he tore the sham from the face of society and gave me glimpses of reality that were as unpleasant as they were undeniably true. As I have said, there was never such a lover as he. No girl could live in a university town till she was twenty-four and not have love experiences. I had been made love to by beardless sophomores and grey professors, and by the athletes and the football giants, but not one of them made love to me as Ernest did. His arms were around me before I knew, his lips were on mine before I could protest or resist. Before his earnestness, conventional maiden dignity was ridiculous. He swept me off my feet by the splendid, invincible rush of him. He did not propose. He put his arms around me and kissed me and took it for granted that we should be married. There was no discussion about it. The only discussion, and that arose afterward, was when we should be married. It was unprecedented. It was unreal. Yet, in accordance with Ernest's test of truth, it worked. I trusted my life to it, and fortunate was the trust. Yet during those first days of our love, fear of the future came often to me when I thought of the violence and impetuosity of his lovemaking. Yet such fears were groundless. No woman was ever blessed with a gentler, tenderer husband. This gentleness and violence on his part was a curious blend similar to the one in his carriage of awkwardness and ease. That slight awkwardness. He never got over it, and it was delicious. His behavior in our drawing-room reminded me of a careful bull in a china shop. Note. In those days, it was still the custom to fill the living room with bric-a-brac. They had not discovered simplicity of living. Such rooms were museums, entailing endless labor to keep clean. The dust demon was the lord of the household. There were a myriad devices for catching dust, and only a few devices for getting rid of it. It was at this time that vanished my last doubt of the completeness of my love for him, a subconscious doubt at most. It was at the Philomath Club, a wonderful night of battle, wherein Ernest bearded the masters in their lair. Now the Philomath Club was the most select on the Pacific coast. It was the creation of Miss Brentwood, an enormously wealthy old maid, and it was her husband, and family, and toy. Its members were the wealthiest in the community and the strongest-minded of the wealthy, with, of course, a sprinkling of scholars to give it intellectual tone. The Philomath had no clubhouse. It was not that kind of a club. Once a month, its members gathered at some one of their private houses to listen to a lecture. The lectures were usually, though not always, hired. If a chemist in New York made a new discovery in, say, radium, all his expenses across the continent were paid, and as well he received a princely fee for his time. The same with a returning explorer from the polar regions, or the latest literary or artistic success. No visitors were allowed, while it was the Philomath's policy to permit none of its discussions to get into the papers. Thus great statesmen, and there had been such occasions, were able fully to speak their minds. I spread before me a wrinkled letter, written to me by Ernest twenty years ago, and from it I copy the following. Your father is a member of the Philomath, so you are able to come. Therefore, come next Tuesday night. I promise you that you will have the time of your life. In your recent encounters, you failed to shake the masters. If you come, I'll shake them for you. I'll make them snarl like wolves. You merely question their morality. When their morality is questioned, they grow only the more complacent and superior. But I shall menace their money bags. That will shake them to the roots of their primitive natures. If you can come, you will see the caveman, in evening dress snarling and snapping over a bone. I promise you a great caterwauling and an illuminating insight into the nature of the beast. They've invited me in order to tear me to pieces. This is the idea of Miss Brentwood. She clumsily hinted as much when she invited me. She's given them that kind of fun before. They delight in getting trustful-souled gentle reformers before them. Miss Brentwood thinks I am as mild as a kitten and as good-natured and stolid as the family cow. I'll not deny that I helped to give her that impression. She was very tentative at first until she divined my harmlessness. I am to receive a handsome fee, $250, as befits the man who, though a radical, once ran for governor. Also, I am to wear evening dress. 
This is compulsory. I never was so apparelled in my life. I suppose I'll have to hire one somewhere. But I'd do more than that to get a chance at the Philomaths. Of all places, the club gathered that night at the Pertonwaithe house. Extra chairs had been brought into the great drawing-room, and in all there must have been two hundred Philomaths that sat down to hear Ernest. They were truly lords of society. I amused myself with running over in my mind the sum of the fortunes represented, and it ran well into the hundreds of millions. And the possessors were not of the idle rich. They were men of affairs, who took most active parts in industrial and political life. We were all seated when Miss Brentwood brought Ernest in. They moved at once to the head of the room from where he was to speak. He was in evening dress, and, what of his broad shoulders and kingly head, he looked magnificent. And then there was that faint and unmistakable touch of awkwardness in his movements. I almost think I could have loved him for that alone. And as I looked at him, I was aware of a great joy. I felt again the pulse of his palm on mine, the touch of his lips. And such pride was mine that I felt I must rise up and cry out to the assembled company, He is mine. He has held me in his arms, and I, mere I, have filled that mind of his to the exclusion of all his multitudinous and kingly thoughts. At the head of the room, Miss Brentwood introduced him to Colonel Van Gilbert, and he knew that the latter was to preside. Colonel Van Gilbert was a great corporation lawyer. In addition, he was immensely wealthy. The smallest fee he would deign to notice was a hundred thousand dollars. He was a master of law. The law was a puppet with which he played. He moulded it like clay, twisted and distorted it like a Chinese puzzle into any design he chose. In appearance and rhetoric he was old-fashioned, but in imagination and knowledge and resource he was as young as the latest statute. His first prominence had come when he broke the Shardwell will. His fee for this one act was five hundred thousand dollars. From then on he had risen like a rocket. He was often called the greatest lawyer in the country, corporation lawyer, of course, and no classification of the three greatest lawyers in the United States could have excluded him. Note. This breaking of wills was a peculiar feature of the period. With the accumulation of vast fortunes, the problem of disposing of these fortunes after death was a vexing one to the accumulators. Will-making and will-breaking became complementary trades like armor-making and gun-making. The shrewdest will-making lawyers were called in to make wills that could not be broken. But these wills were always broken, and very often by the very lawyers that had drawn them up. Nevertheless, the delusion persisted in the wealthy class that an absolutely unbreakable will could be cast. And so, through the generations, clients and lawyers pursued the illusion. It was a pursuit like unto that of the universal solvent of the medieval alchemists. He arose and began, in a few well-chosen phrases that carried an undertone of faint irony, to introduce Ernest. Colonel Van Gilbert was subtly facetious in his introduction of the social reformer and member of the working class, and the audience smiled. It made me angry, and I glanced at Ernest. The sight of him made me doubly angry. He did not seem to resent the delicate slurs. Worse than that, he did not seem to be aware of them. There he sat, gentle and stolid and somnolent. He really looked stupid, and for a moment the thought rose in my mind, what if he were overawed by this imposing array of power and brains? Then I smiled. He couldn't fool me, but he fooled the others, just as he had fooled Miss Brentwood. She occupied a chair right up to the front, and several times she turned her head toward one or another of her confrères and smiled her appreciation of the remarks. Colonel Van Gilbert Dunn, Ernest arose and began to speak. He began in a low voice, haltingly and modestly, and with an air of evident embarrassment. He spoke of his birth in the working class, and of the sordidness and wretchedness of his environment, where flesh and spirit were alike starved and tormented. He described his ambitions and ideals, and his conception of the paradise wherein lived the people of the upper classes. As he said, Up above me, I knew, were unselfishness of the spirit, clean and noble thinking, keen intellectual living. I knew all this because I read seaside library novels, in which, with the exception of the villains and adventuresses, all men and women thought beautiful thoughts, spoke a beautiful tongue, and performed glorious deeds. In short, as I accepted the rising of the sun, I accepted that up above me with all that was fine and noble and gracious, all that gave decency and dignity to life, all that made life worth living, and that remunerated one for his travail and misery. Note. Seaside Library. A curious and amazing literature that served to make the working class utterly misapprehend the nature of the leisure class. 
He went on and traced his life in the mills, the learning of the horseshoeing trade and his meeting with the socialists. Among them, he said, he had found keen intellects and brilliant wits, ministers of the gospel who had been broken because their Christianity was too wide for any congregation of mammon worshippers, and professors who had been broken on the wheel of university subservience to the ruling class. The socialists were revolutionists, he said, struggling to overthrow the irrational society of the present and out of the material to build the rational society of the future. Much more, he said, that would take too long to write, but I shall never forget how he described the life among the revolutionists. All haltering utterance vanished. His voice grew strong and confident, and it glowed as he glowed, and as the thoughts glowed that poured out from him. He said, Amongst the revolutionists I found, also, warm faith in the human, ardent idealism, sweetnesses of unselfishness, renunciation, and martyrdom, all the splendid, stinging things of the spirit. Here life was clean, noble, and alive. I was in touch with great souls, who exalted flesh and spirit over dollars and cents, and to whom the thin wail of the starved slum child meant more than all the pomp and circumstance of commercial expansion and world empire. All about me were nobleness of purpose and heroism of effort, and my days and nights were sunshine and starshine, all fire and dew, with before my eyes, ever burning and blazing, the Holy Grail, Christ's own Grail, the warm human long-suffering and maltreated, but to be rescued and saved at the last. As before I had seen him transfigured, so now he stood transfigured before me. His brows were bright with the divine that was in him, and brighter yet shone his eyes from the midst of the radiance that seemed to envelop him as a mantle. But the others did not see this radiance, and I assumed that it was due to the tears of joy and love that dimmed my vision. At any rate, Mr. Wixon, who sat behind me, was unaffected, for I heard him sneer aloud, Utopian. Note. The people of that age were phrase slaves. The abjectness of their servitude is incomprehensible to us. There was a magic in words greater than the conjurer's art. So befuddled and chaotic were their minds that the utterance of a single word could negative the generalizations of a lifetime of serious research and thought. Such a word was the adjective utopian. The mere utterance of it could damn any scheme, no matter how sanely conceived, of economic amelioration or regeneration. Vast populations grew frenzied over such phrases as an honest dollar and a full dinner pail. The coinage of such phrases was considered strokes of genius. Ernest went on to his rise in society till at last he came in touch with members of the upper classes and rubbed shoulders with the men who sat in the high places. Then came his disillusionment, and this disillusionment he described in terms that did not flatter his audience. He was surprised at the commonness of the clay. Life proved not to be fine and gracious. He was appalled by the selfishness he encountered, and what had surprised him even more than that was the absence of intellectual life. Fresh from his revolutionists, he was shocked by the intellectual stupidity of the master class. And then, in spite of their magnificent churches and well-paid preachers, he had found the masters, men and women, grossly material. It was true that they prattled sweet little ideals and dear little moralities, but in spite of their prattle, the dominant key of the life they lived was materialistic. And they were without real morality. For instance, that which Christ had preached, but which was no longer preached. I met men, he said, who invoked the name of the Prince of Peace in their diatribes against war, and who put rifles in the hands of Pinkertons with which to shoot down strikers in their own factories. I met men incoherent with indignation at the brutality of prize-fighting, and who, at the same time, were parties to the adulteration of food that killed each year more babes than even red-handed Herod had killed. Note. The Pinkertons. Originally, they were private detectives, but they quickly became hired fighting men of the capitalists, and ultimately developed into the mercenaries of the oligarchy. This delicate, aristocratic-featured gentleman was a dummy director and a tool of corporations that secretly robbed widows and orphans. This gentleman, who collected fine editions and was a patron of literature, paid blackmail to a heavy-jowled, black-browed boss of the municipal machine. This editor, who published patent medicine advertisements, called me a scoundrelly demagogue because I dared him to print in his paper the truth about patent medicines. Note. Patent medicines were patent lies, but like the charms and indulgences of the Middle Ages, they deceived the people. The only difference lay in that the patent medicines were more harmful and more costly. 
This man, talking soberly and earnestly about the beauties of idealism and the goodness of God, had just betrayed his comrades in a business deal. This man, a pillar of the church and heavy contributor to foreign missions, worked his shop girls ten hours a day on a starvation wage and thereby directly encouraged prostitution. This man, who endowed chairs in universities and erected magnificent chapels, perjured himself in courts of law over dollars and cents. This railroad magnate broke his word as a citizen, as a gentleman, and as a Christian when he granted a secret rebate, and he granted many secret rebates. This senator was the tool and the slave, the little puppet, of a brutal, uneducated machine boss. So was this governor and this Supreme Court judge, and all three rode on railroad passes. And also this sleek capitalist owned the machine, the machine boss, and the railroads that issued the passes. Note. Even as late as 1912 A.D., the great mass of the people still persisted in the belief that they ruled the country by virtue of their ballots. In reality, the country was ruled by what were called political machines. At first, the machine bosses charged the master capitalists extortionate tolls for legislation, but in a short time, the master capitalists found it cheaper to own the political machines themselves and to hire the machine bosses. And so it was, instead of in paradise, that I found myself in the arid desert of commercialism. I found nothing but stupidity, except for business. I found none clean, noble, and alive, though I found many who were alive with rottenness. What I did find was monstrous selfishness and heartlessness, and a gross, gluttonous, practiced, and practical materialism. Much more Ernest told them of themselves and of his disillusionment. Intellectually they had bored him. Morally and spiritually they had sickened him, so that he was glad to go back to his revolutionists who were clean, noble, and alive, and all that the capitalists were not. And now, he said, let me tell you about that revolution. But first I must say that his terrible diatribe had not touched them. I looked about me at their faces and saw that they remained complacently superior to what he had charged, and I remembered what he had told me, that no indictment of their morality could shake them. However, I could see that the boldness of his language had affected Miss Brentwood. She was looking worried and apprehensive. Ernest began by describing the army of revolution, and as he gave the figures of its strength, the votes cast in the various countries, the assemblage began to grow restless. Concern showed in their faces, and I noticed a tightening of lips. At last the gauge of battle had been thrown down. He described the international organization of the socialists that united the million and a half in the United States with the twenty-three millions and a half in the rest of the world. Such an army of revolution, he said, twenty-five million strong, is a thing to make rulers and ruling classes pause and consider. The cry of this army is, no quarter, we want all that you possess. We will be content with nothing less than all that you possess. We want in our hands the reins of power and the destiny of mankind. Here are our hands. They are strong hands. We are going to take your governments, your palaces, and all your purpled ease away from you. And in that day you shall work for your bread, even as the peasant in the field or the starved and runty clerk in your metropolises. Here are our hands. They are strong hands. And as he spoke, he extended from his splendid shoulders his two great arms, and the horseshoer's hands were clutching the air like eagle's talons. He was the spirit of regnant labor as he stood there, his hands outreaching to rend and crush his audience. I was aware of a faintly perceptible shrinking on the part of the listeners before this figure of revolution, concrete potential and menacing. That is, the women shrank, and fear was in their faces. Not so with the men. They were of the active rich and not the idle, and they were fighters. A low, throaty rumble arose, lingered on the air a moment, and ceased. It was the forerunner of the snarl, and I was to hear it many times that night, the token of the brute in man, the earnest of his primitive passions. And they were unconscious that they had made this sound. It was the growl of the pack, mouthed by the pack, and mouthed in all unconsciousness. And in that moment, as I saw the harshness form in their faces and saw the fight light flashing in their eyes, I realized that not easily would they let their lordship of the world be wrested from them. Ernest proceeded with his attack. He accounted for the existence of the million and a half of revolutionists in the United States by charging the capitalist class with having mismanaged society. 
He sketched the economic condition of the cavemen and of the savage peoples of today, pointing out that they possessed neither tools nor machines, and possessed only a natural efficiency of one in producing power. Then he traced the development of machinery and social organization, so that today the producing power of civilized man was a thousand times greater than that of the savage. Five men, he said, can produce bread for a thousand. One man can produce cotton cloth for two hundred and fifty people, woolens for three hundred, and boots and shoes for a thousand. One would conclude from this that under a capable management of society, modern civilized man would be a great deal better off than the caveman. But is he? Let us see. In the United States today, there are 15 million people living in poverty, and by poverty is meant that condition in life in which, through lack of food and adequate shelter, the mere standard of working efficiency cannot be maintained. In the United States today, in spite of all your so-called labor legislation, there are three millions of child laborers. In 12 years, their numbers have been doubled. And in passing, I will ask you managers of society why you did not make public the census figures of 1910. And I will answer for you that you were afraid. The figures of misery would have precipitated the revolution that even now is gathering. Note. Robert Hunter, in 1906, in a book entitled Poverty, pointed out that at that time there were 10 millions in the United States living in poverty. Note. In the United States Census of 1900, the last census the figures of which were made public, the number of child laborers was placed at 1,752,187. But to return to my indictment, if modern man's producing power is a thousand times greater than that of the caveman, why then, in the United States today, are there 15 million people who are not properly sheltered and properly fed? Why then, in the United States today, are there three million child laborers? It is a true indictment. The capitalist class has mismanaged. In face of the facts that modern man lives more wretchedly than the caveman, and that his producing power is a thousand times greater than that of the caveman, no other conclusion is possible than that the capitalist class has mismanaged, that you have mismanaged, my masters, that you have criminally and selfishly mismanaged. And on this count, you cannot answer me here tonight, face to face, any more than can your whole class answer the million and a half of revolutionists in the United States. You cannot answer. I challenge you to answer. And furthermore, I dare to say to you now that when I have finished, you will not answer. On that point, you will be tongue-tied, though you will talk wordily enough about other things. You have failed in your management. You have made a shambles of civilization. You have been blind and greedy. You have risen up, as you today rise up, shamelessly, in our legislative halls, and declared that profits were impossible without the toil of children and babes. Don't take my word for it. It is all in the records against you. You have lulled your conscience to sleep with prattle of sweet ideals and dear moralities. You are fat with power and possession, drunken with success. And you have no more hope against us than have the drones clustered about the honey vats when the worker bees spring upon them to end their rotund existence. You have failed in your management of society, and your management is to be taken away from you. A million and a half of the men of the working class say that they are going to get the rest of the working class to join with them and take the management away from you. This is the revolution, my masters. Stop it if you can. For an appreciable lapse of time, Ernest's voice continued to ring through the great room. Then arose the throaty rumble I had heard before, and a dozen men were on their feet clamoring for recognition from Colonel Van Gilbert. I noticed Miss Brentwood's shoulders moving convulsively, and for the moment I was angry, for I thought that she was laughing at Ernest. And then I discovered that it was not laughter, but hysteria. She was appalled by what she had done in bringing this firebrand before her blessed Philomath Club. Colonel Van Gilbert did not notice the dozen men, with passion-wrought faces, who strove to get permission from him to speak. His own face was passion-wrought. 
He sprang to his feet, waving his arms, and for a moment could utter only incoherent sounds. Then speech poured from him. But it was not the speech of a $100,000 lawyer, nor was the rhetoric old-fashioned. "'Fallacy upon fallacy!' Never in all my life have I heard so many fallacies uttered in one short hour. And besides, young man, I must tell you that you have said nothing new. I learned all that at college before you were born. Jean-Jacques Rousseau enunciated your socialistic theory nearly two centuries ago. A return to the soil, forsooth. Reversion. Our biology teaches the absurdity of it. It has been truly said that a little learning is a dangerous thing, and you have exemplified it tonight with your madcap theories. Fallacy upon fallacy. I was never so nauseated in my life with overplus of fallacy. That for your immature generalizations and childish reasonings. He snapped his fingers contemptuously and proceeded to sit down. There were lip exclamations of approval on the part of the women, and hoarser notes of confirmation came from the men. As for the dozen men who were clamoring for the floor, half of them began speaking at once. The confusion and babble was indescribable. Never had Mrs. Pertonwaith's spacious walls beheld such a spectacle. These, then, were the cool captains of industry and lords of society, these snarling, growling savages in evening clothes. Truly Ernest had shaken them when he stretched out his hands for their money-bags, his hands that had appeared in their eyes as the hands of the fifteen hundred thousand revolutionists. But Ernest never lost his head in the situation. Before Colonel Van Gilbert had succeeded in sitting down, Ernest was on his feet and had sprung forward. "'One at a time!' he roared at them. The sound arose from his great lungs and dominated the human tempest. By sheer compulsion of personality, he commanded silence. One at a time, he repeated softly. Let me answer Colonel Van Gilbert. After that, the rest of you can come at me. But one at a time, remember. No mass plays here. This is not a football field. As for you, he went on, turning toward Colonel Van Gilbert, you have replied to nothing I have said. You have merely made a few excited and dogmatic assertions about my mental caliber. That may serve you in your business, but you can't talk to me like that. I am not a working man, cap in hand, asking you to increase my wages or to protect me from the machine at which I work. You cannot be dogmatic with truth when you deal with me. Save that for dealing with your wage slaves. They will not dare reply to you because you hold their bread and butter, their lives, in your hands. As for this return to nature that you say you learned at college before I was born, permit me to point out that on the face of it you cannot have learned anything since. Socialism has no more to do with the state of nature than has differential calculus with a Bible class. I have called your class stupid when outside the realm of business. You, sir, have brilliantly exemplified my statement. This terrible castigation of her hundred-thousand-dollar lawyer was too much for Miss Brentwood's nerves. Her hysteria became violent, and she was helped, weeping and laughing, out of the room. It was just as well, for there was worse to follow. "'Don't take my word for it,' Ernest continued, when the interruption had been led away. "'Your own authorities, with one unanimous voice, will prove you stupid. Your own hired purveyors of knowledge will tell you that you are wrong.' Go to your meekest little assistant instructor of sociology and ask him what is the difference between Rousseau's theory of the return to nature and the theory of socialism. Ask your greatest orthodox bourgeois political economists and sociologists. Question through the pages of every textbook written on the subject and stored on the shelves of your subsidized libraries. And from one and all the answer will be that there is nothing congruous between the return to nature and socialism. On the other hand, the unanimous affirmative answer will be that the return to nature and socialism are diametrically opposed to each other. As I say, don't take my word for it. The record of your stupidity is there in the books, your own books that you never read. And so far as your stupidity is concerned, you are but the exemplar of your class. You know law and business, Colonel Van Gilbert. You know how to serve corporations and increase dividends by twisting the law. Very good. Stick to it. You are quite a figure. You are a very good lawyer, but you are a poor historian. You know nothing of sociology, and your biology is contemporaneous with Pliny. Here, Colonel Van Gilbert writhed in his chair. 
There was perfect quiet in the room. Everybody sat fascinated, paralyzed, I may say. Such fearful treatment of the great Colonel Van Gilbert was unheard of, undreamed of, impossible to believe. The great Colonel Van Gilbert, before whom judges trembled when he arose in court. But Ernest never gave quarter to an enemy. This is, of course, no reflection on you, Ernest said. Every man to his trade. Only you stick to your trade and I'll stick to mine. You have specialized. When it comes to a knowledge of the law, of how best to evade the law, or make new law for the benefit of thieving corporations, I am down in the dirt at your feet. But when it comes to sociology, my trade, you are down in the dirt at my feet. Remember that. Remember also that your law is the stuff of a day, and that you are not versatile in the stuff of more than a day. Therefore, your dogmatic assertions and rash generalizations on things historical and sociological are not worth the breath you waste on them. Ernest paused for a moment and regarded him thoughtfully, noting his face dark and twisted with anger, his panting chest, his writhing body, and his slim white hands nervously clenching and unclenching. But it seems you have breath to use, and I'll give you a chance to use it. I indicted your class. Show me that my indictment is wrong. I pointed out to you the wretchedness of modern man, three million child slaves in the United States, without whose labor profits would not be possible, and fifteen million underfed, ill-clothed, and worse-housed people. I pointed out that modern man's producing power through social organization and the use of machinery was a thousand times greater than that of the caveman, and I stated that from these two facts, no other conclusion was possible than that the capitalist class had mismanaged. This was my indictment, and I specifically and at length challenged you to answer it. Nay, I did more. I prophesied that you would not answer. It remains for your breath to smash my prophecy. You called my speech fallacy. Show the fallacy, Colonel Van Gilbert. Answer the indictment that I and my 1,500,000 comrades have brought against your class and you. Colonel Van Gilbert quite forgot that he was presiding, and that, in courtesy, he should permit the other clamorers to speak. He was on his feet, flinging his arms, his rhetoric and his control to the winds, alternately abusing Ernest for his youth and demagoguery and savagely attacking the working class, elaborating its inefficiency and worthlessness. For a lawyer, you are the hardest man to keep to a point I ever saw, Ernest began his answer to the tirade. My youth has nothing to do with what I have enunciated, nor has the worthlessness of the working class. I charge the capitalist class with having mismanaged society. You have not answered. You have made no attempt to answer. Why? Is it because you have no answer? You are the champion of this whole audience. Every one here except me is hanging on your lips for that answer. They are hanging on your lips for that answer because they have no answer themselves. And as for me, as I said before, I know that you not only cannot answer, but that you will not attempt an answer. This is intolerable, Colonel Van Gilbert cried out. This is insult. That you should not answer is intolerable, Ernest replied gravely. No man can be intellectually insulted. Insult, in its very nature, is emotional. Recover yourself. Give me an intellectual answer to my intellectual charge that the capitalist class has mismanaged society. Colonel Van Gilbert remained silent, a sullen, superior expression on his face, such as will appear on the face of a man who will not bandy words with a ruffian. "'Do not be downcast,' Ernest said. "'Take consolation in the fact that no member of your class has ever yet answered that charge.' He turned to the other men who were anxious to speak. "'And now it's your chance. Fire away.' And do not forget that I here challenge you to give the answer that Colonel Van Gilbert has failed to give. It would be impossible for me to write all that was said in the discussion. I never realized before how many words could be spoken in three short hours. At any rate, it was glorious. The more his opponents grew excited, the more Ernest deliberately excited them. 
He had an encyclopedic command of the field of knowledge, and by a word or a phrase, by delicate rapier thrusts, he punctured them. He named the points of their illogic. This was a false syllogism. That conclusion had no connection with the premise, while that next premise was an impostor because it had cunningly hidden in it the conclusion that was being attempted to be proved. This was an error, that was an assumption, and the next was an assertion contrary to ascertained truth as printed in all the textbooks. And so it went. Sometimes he exchanged the rapier for the club and went smashing amongst their thoughts right and left, and always he demanded facts and refused to discuss theories. And his facts made for them a waterloo. When they attacked the working class, he always retorted, The pot calling the kettle black. That is no answer to the charge that your own face is dirty. And to one and all he said, Why have you not answered the charge that your class has mismanaged? You've talked about other things and things concerning other things, but you have not answered. Is it because you have no answer? It was at the end of the discussion that Mr. Wixon spoke. He was the only one that was cool, and Ernest treated him with a respect he had not accorded the others. "'No answer is necessary,' Mr. Wixon said with slow deliberation. "'I have followed the whole discussion with amazement and disgust. "'I am disgusted with you, gentlemen, members of my class. "'You have behaved like foolish little schoolboys, "'what with intruding ethics and the thunder of the common politician into such a discussion. "'You have been outgeneraled and outclassed. "'You have been very wordy, and all you have done is buzz. "'You have buzzed like gnats about a bear. "'Gentlemen, there stands the bear,' he pointed at Ernest." and your buzzing has only tickled his ears. Believe me, the situation is serious. That bear reached out his paws tonight to crush us. He has said there are a million and a half of revolutionists in the United States. That is a fact. He has said that it is their intention to take away from us our governments, our palaces, and all our purpled ease. That also is a fact. A change, a great change, is coming in society. But, happily, it may not be the change the bear anticipates. The bear has said that he will crush us. What if we crush the bear? The throat rumble arose in the great room, and man nodded to man with endorsement and certitude. Their faces were set hard. They were fighters, that was certain. But not by buzzing will we crush the bear, Mr. Wixon went on coldly and dispassionately. We will hunt the bear. We will not reply to the bear in words. Our reply shall be couched in terms of lead. We are in power. Nobody will deny it. By virtue of that power, we shall remain in power. He turned suddenly upon Ernest. The moment was dramatic. This, then, is our answer. We have no words to waste on you. When you reach out your vaunted strong hands for our palaces and purpled ease, we will show you what strength is. In roar of shell and shrapnel and in wine of machine guns will our answer be couched. Note. To show the tenor of thought, the following definition is quoted from the Cynic's Wordbook, 1906 A.D., written by one Ambrose Bierce, an avowed and confirmed misanthrope of the period. Grapeshot. Noun. An argument which the future is preparing in answer to the demands of American socialism. We will grind you revolutionists down under our heel, and we shall walk upon your faces. The world is ours. We are its lords, and ours it shall remain. As for the host of labor... It has been in the dirt since history began, and I read history aright. And in the dirt it shall remain so long as I and mine and those that come after us have the power. There is the word. It is the king of words. Power. Not God, not mammon, but power. Pour it over your tongue till it tingles with it. Power. I am answered, Ernest said quietly. It is the only answer that could be given. Power. It is what we of the working class preach. We know, and well we know by bitter experience, that no appeal for the right, for justice, for humanity, can ever touch you. Your hearts are hard as your heels with which you tread upon the faces of the poor. So we have preached power. By the power of our ballots on election day will we take your government away from you. What if you do get a majority, a sweeping majority, on election day? Mr. Wixon broke in to demand. Suppose we refuse to turn the government over to you after you have captured it at the ballot box? That also have we considered, Ernest replied. 
and we shall give you an answer in terms of lead. Power you have proclaimed the king of words. Very good. Power it shall be. And in the day that we sweep to victory at the ballot box, and you refuse to turn over to us the government we have constitutionally and peacefully captured, and you demand what we are going to do about it, in that day I say, we shall answer you. And in roar of shell and shrapnel, and in whine of machine guns, shall our answer be couched. You cannot escape us. It is true that you have read history aright. It is true that labor has from the beginning of history been in the dirt. And it is equally true that so long as you and yours and those that come after you have power, that labor shall remain in the dirt. I agree with you. I agree with all that you have said. Power will be the arbiter, as it always has been the arbiter. It is a struggle of classes. Just as your class dragged down the old feudal nobility, so shall it be dragged down by my class, the working class. If you will read your biology and your sociology as clearly as you do your history, you will see that this end I have described is inevitable. It does not matter whether it is in one year, ten, or a thousand. Your class shall be dragged down, and it shall be done by power. We of the labor hosts have conned that word over till our minds are all a-tingle with it. Power, it is a kingly word. And so ended the night with the Philomaths. End of chapter 5 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org